So it's Psalm 49 on page 564, which is the first reading. Hear this, all you people. Listen, all who lived in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My word, my mouth will speak words of wisdom. The mediation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ears to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches, no one can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for them. The ransom for a, the ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So that you should live forever and not see decay. For all who can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses, forever their dwellings for endless generations. Though they had named lands after themselves, people despise their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in graves far from the princely mansions, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed, overawed with other, that when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though, they, though, though while they live they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts who perish. That is a first reading. The second reading is Hebrews 1 to uh, Hebrews 2.4. And that is on page 1204, so I'll give you time to find that. So I'm not sure whether I drew the short straw for having two readings in the one day, but I'll blame Matt later. So page 1204. Now that I can see Matt's almost there, I can start. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir to all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is a radiance of, the God's, is a radiance of God's glory and the exact, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his power of powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, for he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much a superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? Or again... I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, 
When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about his son, he said, you throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also say, says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but they will perish, but you will remain. You, re, you will wear out the, you will wear out like garments. You will roll them up like robes, like garments. They should be changed, but you will remain the same, and your years will never end. To which the angels did God ever say, "Sit at my right hand until I make, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through an angel was binding, and every violation and disobedience received his just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore the great salvation, this salvation, which, the, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. If you could keep that passage open, that'd be really helpful uh, for you and probably for me as well. Why don't we pray? <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, which because it's your word, speaks to our hearts and our minds. Please do it today. By your Holy Spirit, take hold of where we are at in our lives. Help us to look honestly and carefully at how we are walking with you. And may this passage we look at today stir us, encourage us, enable us, perhaps challenge us to make sure we walk very closely in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Well, I don't know what sort of books you've got on your books, bookshelves, but um, there's one on my bookshelves with, which is a biography, and uh, it reads a bit like this. And I'm gonna ask you to do some work right at the very start, so you have gotta work out who it's talking about. When you've worked it out, shoot your, head, your hand up, okay? Uh, we'll see if you're right. No prize, except I'll say well done. <laughs> this is the comment. A truly stunning account of his extraordinary life a vivid testimony to an unusual mixture of courage, persistence, tolerance, and forgiveness. 
Anyone got a chair? It's a bit hard, isn't it? Here's another one. One of the most extraordinary political tales of the 20th century and well worth the investment for anyone truly interested in the genesis of greatness. Well done. Do I have here a, a South African twang there? No, no. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well done. Well done. I never realised um, the impact that this man had on so many people, certainly in his nation as a, as a uh, president there for many years, but also on the world leaders. You can see in the testimonies they made at his funeral. In fact, while he was in jail, there was a, a fellow in there with him who made a very moving tribute to him at his funeral. He said, now that he's gone, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that just tells us how, how close he'd gotten to Nelson Mandela and perhaps depended on him in many ways. Another guy said, Nelson Mandela is one of those um, politicians, leaders, who you only see once in a hundred years. That's a pretty big call, isn't it? Now that's all very grand stuff. There's another comment that sort of levels it a little bit and gives a balance and it goes like this. This is absorbing reading. The work of a great politician who still retains the ability to reflect on himself as a mere mortal. That's one of the Australian commentators. Now we might look up to Nelson Mandela, Mandela as, as one of uh, humanity's best or one of our you know, local gener recent generation's best leaders uh, in the world. Uh, and that's true. He's a good gift from God um, to the people of South Africa. And many look back with great fondness on him. And he brought significant change to a lot of lives. But in the end, we have to say, we have to agree with the person who brought the balance to his life and say, but he's a mere mortal, just like you and me. The Christian faith rests on the fact that although God in his generosity raises up fine, many fine men and women, who help us uh, make significant gains in our lives, yet none of them are sufficiently equipped to deal with our inherent need. Not just financial needs, uh, needs for someone to live, etc., a stable country, a secure place, but that inherent need that is part of each one of us. The inherent need to be in right standing with God, the God who created us, the one who put everything together like uh, we see and then put us into the middle of it. The one who um, is a living God who wants to enjoy a living friendship with him. We need to be living life in friendship with the living God. And so the Bible actively encourages us to lift our eyes up um, to Nelson Mandela and keep going, keep lifting, keep lifting your eyes higher and higher and higher until you might say you get to the point of absolute perfect greatness beyond which you cannot go any further. And that's where we see the figure of Jesus. And I'm intrigued that this man, when he starts his, his letter, which I think is like a long sermon, doesn't muck around by saying, hi, how are you going? Heard about the love you're exercising like Paul does. He just jumps straight in and says, let's look at Jesus. So important. 
Let's look at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. He's the sharp focus of this writer. And he stands in a league of his own. Nelson Mandela's and the others are terrific. We thank God for them. But Jesus stands in a league of his own in a group of one. And as the writer builds up this, if you like, identity kit picture of Jesus in chapter 1, you may get bristles on the back of your neck because you realise that in Jesus we have God's absolute best and his absolute final offer to mankind. And you and I can be part of it. We can share in it. It can be ours. That's the wonderful thing about what this writer is saying as he brings his portrait of Jesus to us. Now we need to say, why is that? And okay, it's a sermon, I've got three points. The first point is this. Jesus is God's final word. No greater word beyond him. We can't wait for the next person to come to sort of build upon what's been said. That's it. What Jesus has, says to us, what he brings to us from God is the final word. We don't need anything else. We've got everything. All we need now is for that to be applied in our lives. God's always been a God who speaks powerfully and who speaks creatively to uh, his people. Um, you've just got to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and, and that um, uh, repetition of let there be, let there be, let there be. There's an early indication. He intends to communicate with us on a regular basis and actively throughout the Bible. That's what he does. As you read through the scriptures, that's what you see happening. But when you get to Jesus, God reveals in him what he has always wanted for his creation and his people from the very beginning. Because I look at you and you look at me and we see, okay, um, well we will after getting to know each other for a while. Okay, there's Chris. What's his potential? What could he be like? And I pray if we were together long enough, you would see a change going on that would, would be indicating to you uh, where I am going in Christ. But in Christ, he's already there. His potential is already fulfilled and perfected. There's nothing else needs to be done to make him as what God wanted him to be. And so he's, you and I, perfecto. And that means that as God communicates to us through him, that he tells us we can belong to him now, we can know him, and we can live with him. In the birth of Jesus, history has moved from what we might call the time of promise in the past to the time of fulfilment in the present. Is that a bit not annoying? I'm not sure what's causing that. I'll stand back a little bit. So, we, so the Old Testament is, is a time of... That's even worse, isn't it? <laughs> when I stand over here. So the Old Testament is a time of, of um, promise in the past and the New Testament is a time of fulfilment um, in which we live now. So God spoke into Old Testament figures and we have to say the Old Testament and the New Testament are both um, equally um, important parts of the scriptures. But God spoke through his people in the, in the past uh, as a, in a time of promise. And then God speaks to his people about uh, the present 
and what's going to happen in the future. That was from their perspective. But they never saw the, 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 the wonderful fulfilments of the promises God made. Um, the writer tells us in chapter 11, a little bit later on, these were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It was coming, but they never saw it. Whereas we see it. We see in Jesus what they were hoping for and longing for. We live in the time of fulfilment, not the time of promise. When all the magnificent promises God has made through history come together in Jesus and find, as Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Every promise God ever made finds its yes in him. And so we see that. We have the wonderful privilege of knowing that to be true. The Old Testament might be described as a time of shadow. The New Testament might be described in comparison as a time of reality. Temporary compared to permanent. Fulfill uh, promise compared to fulfilment. It's like if you're a gardener or a pretend gardener like me, you know the difference between a bud and a full, fully open flower. Now, if you just look at the bud, you know that at some point it's going to be a fully open flower. The Old Testament's like the bud. Everything's there. All, all that's needed is there. All that needs to happen is for someone to open it. And that's what Jesus does. He opens the bud, and the New Testament we see all those promises and their fulfilments together on display. And Jesus is a climax of the whole salvation plan. So you might call him the jewel in the crown. He's the key that just unlocks and explains the full picture. So if you've come to know him and to love him and to own him as your saviour, and I'm not assuming that everyone has come to that point yet, but if you have, why on earth would you or I ever contemplate walking away from him? Why would we contemplate that? Either deliberately or by not recognising that it's happening. Why would we want to move back into the shadows when we've stepped out into the light? Why would we want to go back to a time of promise when we're in a time of fulfilment? Jesus is God's final word. That's what makes him so incredibly significant to you and to me and to our community. The second reason is in verses 2 to 4. He's the, most, the one most qualified to speak God's mind. If we want to know, okay, what, what are we here for? What's it all about? What is God doing? Um, how do we fit in? Who speaks to us and tells us all of that? It's Jesus. Nobody else is able to speak the mind of God as well as he does. If you look at verses 2 to 4, it's very compacted. But there's a, what we might call a cosmic resume being written there. Have you written a resume recently? You know how it goes. You put your two or three best things in first and then you scratch your head, what else can I add? <laughs> and it takes a little bit of time to work out. Here, there's a, if you, a cosmic resume being written about Jesus and there are seven aspects 
of Jesus' qualifications here that present him as the perfect candidate to bring us into relationship with God and to take charge. And let's face it, if, if you or I had even one of these qualifications, we'd be faded across the world. We'd be prominent in, uh, in society. We'd be looked upon as a, as a great one. But Jesus, um, all seven of these things apply to him. The writer just tops one upon the other until in a sense you almost become overwhelmed by the reality here. There is no one else more qualified to explain God's word and the reasons are these. Firstly, because of who he is. We haven't got time to look at it in detail but just as we look at the list, let the impact come upon you. He is the one who was appointed heir to all things. Now, I notice there's some older members in the congregation, including myself. Uh, we, we talk about what we might pass on to our children. Uh, they'll inherit from us whatever. But Jesus has been appointed to inherit everything. Everything. There's no, nothing that he will not inherit because it is actually his. He is the creator of the universe so that he put everything together in the first place. He is the radiance of God's glory as the Son of God so that the glory that radiates from his Father also radiates from him. In other words, he's fully divine just like his Father is. He's a truly the Son of God. He's the exact representation of God's being. The essence of God is the essence of Jesus. He's the sustainer of all things. You and I rely on him breath by breath, every day, every hour. So he's the, he's the one that brings um, uh, God's mind to us because of who he is. But he also does it because of what he's done. Uh, the writer here talks about him providing purification for sins. And what, he's, what he means is that Jesus dealt with that inherent problem we were looking at earlier on. We have a basic self-centeredness, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that leads us to keep our eyes more often on ourselves and leave God out. Even as Christians, we, we know that to be true. But because God values us and our responses are so highly important to him, if he counts our lives of value, he will judge how we live and how we respond. And that's what he does. Jesus has done what no one else can do. He's dealt with our sin through his death. He's won us forgiveness before God. And with him there is the true joy of friendship with God. The thing that we all ultimately want, that is to know where we fit and to rejoice at, through being part of that, we find through Jesus. And the writer says, that means then without him, there is only judgment left. What a difference Jesus has made to our lives. And if you haven't yet come to that point of putting your faith in Jesus Christ, what a difference he could make to your life. <coughs> because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of the authority he holds. The writer says that Jesus has sat down after his death and resurrection. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and God has put him in charge. 
which means over the entire universe, not just over one nation, every part of that created universe is called to acknowledge his ultimate authority and bring their lives under its scope. That's you and me. His authority he holds everywhere. So as you put that together, you realise that here is a figure who is, who is mighty and dynamic, as we've sung in the songs this morning, uh, who is majestic, who is able, who is powerful, who is resourced, who can do what God has always wanted to do with you. And he will. The third point he makes, the last point is in verse 5 to 14. It's a long little passage, we're just going to um, put it together very quickly. That writer makes in the, this, this point in his sermon, he makes a really long comparison between Jesus and the angels. And he says Jesus is superior to the angels. You might say, why is that important to know? Well, the commentators suggest to us, and it makes a lot of sense, the angels were associated apparently with the giving of the law. And for the Jewish religion, uh, the angels were therefore uh, of great standing and uh, very, very important. Um, it was crucial to show the superiority of Jesus in both his identity and also his ministry. And that's what he's doing here. So there's seven successive quotes from the Old Testament to show how clearly that's true. We have no one else than God speaking out in witness about this for Jesus. And it leaves us with no room for debate as to who is superior. And I suppose instead of angels here, you could, you could just substitute any person or any movement or any philosophy or any religion that claims Jesus' rightful place for themselves. For the Christian, Jesus is the measure by which you assess all other spiritual alternatives. So he started with an incredible uh, impact and then he gets to his real point, he gets to his, um, the point that he was leading to and that's in those couple of verses in chapter 2. He's argued so carefully and with such focus on these facts that they've come to know as true. Why? Why has he put Jesus up into such a prominent position? Um, because Jesus by right is God's best possible offer. There is no other better offer. And it's his final offer as well. And although we've heard the gospel message and we've come to trust Jesus in the past, this group were showing signs of drifting away. And this pastor who was writing this sermon could see that very clearly and the best thing for him to do was to show who would they, they would be walking away from and the nature and majesty of that person. If they give Jesus up, it's not just a bad choice, there is no one else to save them. That's his point. And so he's making absolutely sense, great sense. In verse 3 of chapter 2 he says, How shall we escape the judgment of God if we ignore such a great salvation? Well, God testifies to Jesus, the gospel testifies to Jesus, the Holy Spirit testifies to him, Christian leaders like this writer testify to him, Ben and Alyssa Connolly testify to him by bringing little Josiah today. Their heart's desire is that Josiah will embrace Jesus in all the majesty we've talked about this morning. Can I ask, 
do you testify to him? Let the writer, having written this, turn and speak to you. Do you testify to Jesus in the light of what this man has said? He's saying to you and to me how foolish it would be not to thoroughly and deliberately throw our lot in with Jesus. In all honesty, if you know you've been drifting away in your relationship with God over time, um, it's time to stop and reassess your journey. It's absolutely essential that you start actively engaging with Jesus again because you'll never get another offer as good as this one. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us in such a variety of ways, in your creation, in your word, but most effectively and clearly in your Son. Thank you today for a fresh look at Jesus, your greatest gift to us and the highest reason for honouring you. In him you have communicated to us your absolute best. Help us to delight in knowing him and loving him and promote him as Saviour and Lord to your ongoing glory. Amen.